One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. This summer we've been asking the question, what are the essential practices that shape the Christian life? It's what we've been taking to the Bible this summer. Like, what, what is it? What are the things that we do that kind of shape and, and direct a Christian life? We're, we're looking to the Bible to highlight for us these basic practices that stem from what we believe. And this week... This week we come to a necessary road, but a difficult one. I don't, I don't think it would be um, too much to say that. It's a difficult road because this nation, more than most, though certainly not exclusively, right? Um, this nation has a history marked by division, specifically racial division. We've all been touched by it, every one of us. Even if we vehemently deny the labels we attach to it, we've all been touched by it. But this week we see that reconciliation, specifically in this text, in the book of Ephesians, racial reconciliation, is not optional for Christianity. It's not optional for the Christian. It's essential to it. So if you have your place in Ephesians 2, if you'd stand, as is our habit, in honor of God's word, we're going to be reading verses um, 13 and down, or sorry, verses 11 down to 22. This is God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made, by, made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we're going to need an extra measure of your grace this morning. Because there is so much baggage that we bring into this place and this topic. And so we ask that you would come, that you would, by your Spirit, soften our hearts to hear from you, open our ears, open our minds, and Lord, preach your gospel to us. Let Christ and his cross come to the fore. Let the one who preaches and speaks fall to the wayside, because you alone, Lord Jesus, hold the words of eternal life. So we ask this in your name. Amen. Have a seat. Let me be honest with you, every time I get up to preach on this topic, I get nervous. I don't generally get nervous in front of people. It's one of the reasons why I do this, I think. But, but with this one, I do. Um, why? Uh, 
I think because this is a charged issue, right? I mean, look, I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm a white dude, right? And, and I grew up formatively in two places uh, that were incredibly racially charged. Uh, my elementary school bus, twice a day on the way to school and back, drove past the old Waller Plantation in Spotsylvania, Virginia, um, which was the location uh, that, um, that provided the context and the history behind Alex Haley's book, Roots. Right? I don't know if you knew that that was in Virginia. That was. Kunta Kinte was actually buried on that plantation. And, and actually, some of my friends that I sat next to on that bus, um, like a guy named Chris Talley, um, were descendants of slaves who worked that farm. And they still lived in the area. We all kind of lived right next to each other. In rural uh, central Virginia, tensions, racial tensions were palpable. That history wasn't that distant. And then in my middle and high school years, I lived in Falls Church, Virginia, and then later in Manassas, where, like, especially in Falls Church, like, there was no such thing as a racial majority. Like, there's just a bunch of different kinds of people, and nobody really got along very well. Uh, gang activity was normal. So I understand a little bit of this tension firsthand. But the tension that's present even in this room is, is probably a little different, right? Because some of us in this room probably are tempted to want to deny the fact that racial injustice still happens, right? I mean, some of us kind of think, well, we live in a colorless society, right? Got a black president. Mm-hmm. But others of us aren't tempted that way. We're tempted to, to kind of blame racial injustice for every evil in the world. Which means that you put these things together, I get nervous because you're going to be upset. More than likely, by the time I'm finished, some of y'all are going to be pretty upset. And so, like the clergy to whom Dr. King wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, like I, I, my cowardliness just kind of takes over. I just want to kind of lay low and hope it all blows over. But it won't. It doesn't, right? Because at the same time, I cannot, as a student of the Bible and as a student of the early church, deny the fact that when Christianity came on the scene, something dramatic happened where people who were divided by socioeconomic groups and, and racial tensions and all of these things that we think we invented in, in, in America in the 19th century, we did not. We, we, that all of these people who have these same tensions all of a sudden were come along, coming around the same table, eating together, fellowshipping together, and treating one another like family. Like something happened, something about Jesus coming on the scene changed everything. And I, can also, I cannot also deny that, that large parts of the New Testament speak directly to this issue. Much like, uh, quite frankly, the, most of the entire book that we're going to be going through in the fall, the book of Galatians, speaks directly to this issue. And so then it must be essential to the Christian life, that, that it is not something that's peripheral, but actually an essential aspect of it. And so that's why we've got to talk about it, and we've got to talk about it this morning. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this text in, in three ways. That's, there's an outline in your bulletin, as always. We're going to look at um, the foundation for reconciliation. We're going to look at the fact of it, the fact of reconciliation. And then finally, we'll, we'll look at the following, okay? The foundation, the fact, and then the following. Before we start with the foundation, let me say something about the dude who wrote this. So, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. He, earlier in his life, he was, he was known as Saul. He was, um, he was Jewish of a strict group of Jews called Pharisees, right? And Pharisees, um, they didn't play well with outsiders. What I mean is that Paul was so zealous 
for his religion. When he said that my zeal, and he says this in another place, my zeal for the, the traditions of my father surpassed all that had come before me. What he meant was, dude was willing to go house to house, city to city, dragging Christians out of their houses and either putting them in jail or killing them because of their belief. Because of their faith in Christ. Because he thought it was, it was um, uh, polluting Judaism. It was polluting the faith. And so he was so zealous for what he believed, he was willing to, to execute violence on those who disagreed with him. Until one day, where he's on his way to another city to do that, a city by the name of Damascus, and he has an encounter with the risen Jesus, and all of a sudden, now he goes gallivanting around the Mediterranean world, planting churches of Christians amongst Gentiles with whom he would not have even touched years previous. He wouldn't have even gotten near them. That's who wrote this. And in terms of context, Paul is writing uh, to Christians in the city of Ephesus, which um, Ephesus, the location of Ephesus is in uh, modern-day Turkey. Okay? So uh, the congregation there would have had, would have had people who, who, were, who were Jewish in their background and had come to believe in Jesus the Messiah and others who had come from pagan backgrounds. Our, Ephesus was a, a large city where the, the um, main place of worship was a big temple to Artemis. Um, it was like the Greek goddess of the hunt and, um, and fertility. Uh, fertility goddesses are fun at parties. But uh, they, they, they uh, would have been worshiping from these two contexts and all of a sudden are together. And the verses that immediately precede this, so Ephesians 2, uh, especially verses 8 through 10, as, as they come into this passage, speak to the fact that as Christians, as Christians, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that also, because of that, we have been formed by God, uh, formed, created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship. Literally, Paul says his poem, like his, his work of art that he has put together to do the great things that God prepared in advance for us to do. And right after saying God prepared great things for you in advance, he comes to this about being reconciled with one another. And he lays out that foundation first by speaking of being a stranger. Look down at verses 11 to 12. He says, look, remember one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Uh, stop right there. Some of you have already checked out because you think you landed in sketchy land this morning. Uh, look, I know that it's like, what? this is church. What are we doing talking about that? Okay, but look, um, Follow me for a second, because this is important. In, in a, if, you were a first, if you were a Jewish person in the first century, you knew that there were two kinds of people in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Okay? What marked Jews out was a primarily a, a cultural... Well, there were several cultural practices, like what they ate. Right? Can't have bacon or sausage. That's rough, man. Uh, you can't do that. Um, you, you can't... Um, you had this thing called the Sabbath that you had to keep um, meticulously. And then there was this other thing that, that happened with boys, and it was called circumcision. Okay? That was what marked you out. And so, and so uh, it wasn't like they were the only ones that did it in the ancient world, but it was, uh, especially in the Mediterranean, the Roman, Gre- Greco-Roman world, they were, they, that was kind of a central thing. It was a way that, that they began using to describe themselves against the rest of the world. We are this. Maybe I ought to back up a little bit further. Uh, you see, 
The story that, that Jews believe, the story of the Bible, is that God created the world, he created it good, he created us for himself to be in a loving, dependent relationship with him. But in time, we, we didn't think that was a good idea. We betrayed him, we turned away from him. We broke relationship with him. Because we wanted to do things our own way. That hasn't, that's not unfamiliar, right? It's like God says, I, I, you will flourish as a person. You will be the most satisfied, happy if, if this happens. And we go, eh, yeah, I don't think so. I'm going to do this instead. Like we, we still do it all the time. And so when we originally did this, that brought on two problems, at least. The first being that we became guilty for betraying God. You know this. When you betray someone, that happens. Guilt happens. But, but secondly, we became stuck. Stuck in such a way that that posture of independence, I want to be separate from you, God. I'll do it myself. I'll think of my own way of flourishing. I'll decide what's right and what's wrong and how reality is. We became stuck in that independence so that now, by nature, that is true of us. And by nature, we now seek independence from God. Okay? That is what the Bible calls sin. I, I know that we, we've kind of come to believe that, look, look, sin is something you do. And it is something you do. But it's something you do because of what, what we are. We do that because of who we are. We don't become that because of what we do. Okay? But the good news is God didn't give up. He promised to make things right. And so as we continue the story throughout, especially the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, God goes and, and when everyone is turned away from him, the whole world is, is turned away from him. He goes and he chooses one dude for himself, a guy by the name of Abraham. And he, he grabs him and he says, he says it's going to be through you and your family that I'm going to make the world right. I'm going to make this right. And so Abraham's family became known as Israel. Jews. Okay. They were God's people. The rest of the world followed their own path, but Abraham's family, it was, it was them that, through, that God revealed himself and that God had chosen to heal the world through. So when Paul says, you were Gentiles in the flesh, outside of Christ, strangers to the citizenship of Israel, foreigners or aliens to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world, basically what he's saying is, if you weren't in this group of people formally, you are done. Like, the world is lost. In other words, Paul is saying, there are not many roads that lead to God. Because quite frankly, you can't get on a road and get to God. God's got to get to you. And he got to us through Abraham, through Abraham's family. Right? That last line, you were without hope, without God in the world. That is like the root of awful. And what he is talking about is that God determined to work to rescue all of humanity from our guilt, all of humanity from being stuck in our, in our sin, and all of humanity from being alienated from him. And he determined to do that through Abraham's family and not by the world at large. Okay? By nature, humanity does not seek God. We do not pursue God. Listen to me. We may pursue religion. We may even pursue something that we think is God with a little g, but we do not pursue the God who made us, the God that we betrayed. Fundamentally, we are separate from him and want no part of him. And Paul is basically saying, look, formerly, if you weren't Jewish, there was no hope. There was no hope. You didn't, you didn't even know about God. You were without him in the world. Look, I know this is offensive, right? Because we're all for democracy, 
We're all, we're all for like democracy and equal opportunity. And, 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 but you got to understand, that's not how God worked. The only thing about humanity that was equal was that we were all equally in trouble. We had all equally turned away from God and equally guilty before Him. And that was true of Abraham's family too. Look, God pa- plucked Abraham out of a city called Ur in which he was worshiping pagan idols. He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't thinking, you know, I'd really love to get to know the God of the universe who created me and wants to have a relationship with me and da da da. And he was like bowing down to the, the same idols that everyone else around him was. God plucked him out of that. The only thing that set Abraham and his family apart was that God chose them and was in relationship with them, that he determined that. Okay? But that's not the end of the story, though. Look down at verse 13. Paul says, but now, which quite frankly, that's like the best two words in the entirety of the Bible. But now, sometimes it says, but God, like, it's like, here was reality, but, I di- but God did something else. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, okay? Listen close, here's the rest of the story. God, God rescues Abraham, says, your family's going to be the ones through whom I, I rescue the world. The problem is, they had a similar problem, Right? They kept failing at being God's rescue plan. And they couldn't rescue, Abraham's family couldn't rescue humanity because they were just broken. Like if you're, if you're in the middle of the ocean drowning and someone's drowning right next to you, you guys are not saving each other. You're both going to drown. Right? You can't save someone from the same plight that you were in. That was Abraham's family. They had God's law, but they couldn't keep it. The Old Testament is a consistent story of that. They had it, but they couldn't keep it. They had God's word, but they didn't want to follow it. They had God's worship. The worship, he said, do it like this. They're like, eh, I'd rather do it this way. And so they kept doing that. And and over and over again, this was going on. They needed rescue as much as the rest of the world did. And see, that's where Jesus comes in. Because since no one in Abraham's family could accomplish what God meant to do through Abraham's family, God became part of Abraham's family in Jesus to do it. What do I mean by that? Simply this. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. He is is Lord of heaven and earth, the one through whom everything was created, and yet in time took on humanity in Jesus. And then he he lived the life we couldn't by perfectly loving God and others, and he died for our sin. That's what that whole blood of Christ thing is about. The you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ that, that... that uh, our guilt from betraying God had to be dealt with, and so Jesus came to bear it for us. But now here's the thing. Paul is saying that what brings us near, okay? In other words, he's implying that when we broke relationship with God, we were far from him. And he says what brings us near to God is not our good activities, our good moral behaviors, our sincere actions, or our right beliefs. Nor is it our cultural practices in which we say, well, God likes me and my group better than he likes them and their group. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We were lost. We were without hope. We were without God, stuck in our sin, stuck in our independence from him, under God's rightful wrath at being betrayed. Now, some of you are probably thinking, like, Rick, come on, you're exaggerating a little bit. I'm really, I'm really doing all right. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I mean, who is? Exactly. Exactly. That's the whole point. You see, I've said this before. I say it again because I think it's a helpful image. 
We think getting right with God is like outrunning the bear, where you don't have to outrun the bear, you just outrun the dude next to you, or even better, you trip him up so that he falls, and then you make it to the tree. Like, we think that's the way I'm going to get right with God, is as long as he gets somebody and I'm a little bit ahead of him, we'll be okay. But that's not it. That's not it. God isn't looking for good from us. He's not even looking for, like, not quite perfect. He's looking for dependent. And as long as you and I pursue life independent from God, whether that pursuing of life looks really nice and clean and moral and good, or whether it looks like a train wreck, the problem is still there. The only thing that can return us to God is an encounter with Jesus that results in us abandoning our own efforts and placing our hope and faith in Him. Listen to me. That is what it means to have hope and to have God. If you're here this morning and you're like, that sounds really nice, Rick, but that's not me. The Bible is telling you this morning that you are without hope and without God in the world. That, that's simply what the text says. Now, that is the foundation that Paul lays, and he begins to work out the fact. Look down at verses 14 to 18. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the law, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God by his cross. Now stop there. I need you to come to grips with what Paul has just said. Basically is this. Before Jesus came, two types of people, Jews and Gentiles, okay? Now, the reality is, is that um, this is both racial and cultural, okay? Listen, check in with me. We need to get this. This is racial and cultural because Jews did not associate with Gentiles. They didn't associate with Gentiles because Gentiles would make them unclean. They would pollute them ritually, okay? If you're a Jew and you're, and you're going down in um, Ephesus and you're walking to the market, if you see Gentiles messing with stuff, like buying stuff, or there are Gentile merchants, you don't visit the Gentile merchant because the Gentile merchant is going to sell you something that's going to make you unclean. In other words, in the ancient world, you might as well have had two water fountains, two entrances, two restaurants, one that said Jew and the other said Gentile, because we didn't want to get, Jews didn't want to get near Gentiles, they would make them unclean, they pollute them. And in most cases, Jews were waiting uh, in hope, because they read their Bibles, they were waiting in hope for God to come and answer his promise to rescue them, and most thought that when that happened, he would destroy the Gentiles. Because they all hated God. And when I say Gentiles, you do know I'm talking about us, right? Most of us in this room are not Jewish in our heritage. Maybe a couple. But not, most of us are not, right? So when we talk about Gentiles, we're talking about us. Most Jews thought, again, reading their Bible, that when God came, he was going to destroy the Gentiles. In other words, before Jesus, you were identified by your race. That was the root of who you, your identity was bound up in your race. In fact, if you were Jewish, you believed, uh, wrongly, but you believed that your place before God was bound up in your race. In other words, because I am a child of Abraham, I am pleasing to God. 
But now, Paul says, Jesus has reconciled both to God through his cross. Do you get that? Both. In other words, both, are, both were in trouble. Both were in need, and Jesus reconciled both to God. What Paul is saying is that Jesus' work wasn't just for Jews. It was for Gentiles. And again, praise God for that, because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be here. None of us. Well, like I said, maybe a couple of you. But most of us would not. But there's more. He says that he did this to create one new humanity from the two. All right, what does he mean? Just this. You and I were created to find our identity, our value, and our worth in God. But when we betrayed him, we looked for anything other than God to place that identity, worth, and value in. And the easiest one for us, and you know this because you do this, I know you do because I do it, we all struggle with it, that the easiest one to do that is to find our identity, our value, and our worth in a collection of all of us who look the same, do the same, act the same, listen to the same music, dress the same way. It's a logical place. So that we can find our identity and worth in the fact that we are part of a group. Right? We are part of a group. My identity, my hopes... What makes me right is that I'm white or black or Asian or Hispanic or or even beyond that, I'm I'm Italian or Irish or, or what have you. Paul says Jesus' work was to reorder all of these back on God. All of them. In other words, if you have trusted in Jesus, these things do not define you anymore. He does. That does not mean that it's eliminated. It just means it's not the root of who you are. He is. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 18 when he says that we all have access in one spirit to God. He's saying there are no divisions in Christ. There are none. There is in Jesus and thus reconciled to God and there is outside of Jesus and thus not reconciled to God. In Christ, he has remade humanity and reordered us back around himself, not around race. And that leads us to a new house. Look down at verses 19 and 22. Paul says, look, you're not strangers and foreigners anymore. You're now part of the household of God and in fact being built into a holy temple together. Okay, listen to me. Here's why this matters. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the temple was a really big deal. We don't get that, right? Uh, look, at best, if you were raised in a really high church tradition, maybe you went to church, but it was like you, you were raised in a tradition with like we go, it's called smells and bells, right? Uh, robes, large ceilings, pipe organs, all that stuff. If you were raised in a high church tradition, to some extent you may have some sense of like that space matters. But for most of us, like God's everywhere. What's the big deal? But in the Old Testament, the temple was huge because the temple was the place where God's special glory dwelt. It wasn't everywhere. That cloud, that glory cloud was in one place. It was the temple. And and in the temple, that was the place where you would go to receive forgiveness from God. That's where you would go to receive healing. That's where you would go to have your conflicts between one another resolved. The temple was like the foundation of, of all of community life. And what Paul is saying is that all of us are being built into that reality. In other words, the church is the place now where people encounter God and know God. And Paul is saying that God's temple, listen to me, God's temple is built with multicolored bricks in the same temple. 
Not in, well, we got this one over here and that one's over there and that one's over there and we can all look monochromatic. No, no, no. God's temple is built with multicolored bricks. Okay, this is huge. I need you to listen close. The vision that Paul is casting is of a church that is not divided by race. We are to all be together because he is telling us we are together. We are together in Christ. Jesus has made one new humanity, one new temple, one church. And this is even given to us, listen, because some of it, this, this is going to blow some of your minds. This is given to us as the, one of the reasons that Christ died. Did you, did you catch that? Look, before I, I highlight the verse, I said this a few weeks ago. I asked the question, is what you're living for worth Christ's dying for? Is the thing that you're living for worth Christ dying for? Well, look down at verse 15 because Paul says that Christ died in order that. In other words, so that, here comes the conclusion, he might make one new humanity out of the two. In other words, this idea of racial reconciliation in the church is not optional. It's why Jesus died. It's why he died. He died for this. It is part of what Christ died for. The segregation of Christ's church. Listen, the, the, the old adage that, that 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour of, of the American life. Like the, the, That idea, the segregation of Christ's church on Sunday and throughout the week, is sin. And we must repent of it. Now, let's be honest. None of us are doing good here, right? One of the pastors I read this week said, said this, that every Christian is a recovering racist. Every one of us. I think he's right. It's just an easy thing for us to run to. And so I want to speak really quick to the barriers to us pursuing this as we look at following and reconciliation. Those barriers really come down to two things. Those barriers are pride and fear. I think they're pretty common barriers, honestly, in the Christian life. Pride and fear. Let's start with pride. Look, it sounds weird to us that Paul would want to talk about racial reconciliation the first in, in the church, because Ephesians, the whole book of Ephesians is really about the beauty of the church. And it's weird to us that he would start to talk about that topic by talking about, look, look at, here's all the stuff that Jesus did. But you see, the answer to racism, the answer to prejudice in general, is not trying hard to not be racist. Nor is it self-loathing because of, of what, you know, what your prejudices that are in your heart. Or even uh, racial loathing where you just despise your whole culture because of what has gone on. That is not going to produce change. That is why Paul does not begin with that. So, therefore, since all of us are recovering racists, work hard to do better. That's not what he says. And there's a reason. Because the answer to these things is the notion that we are made right with God by faith in Jesus alone. Here's what I mean. Racism, in whatever its form, whatever kind of shape it takes, is a form of self-justification. It's a way for me to say, um, uh, I am right, or I am valuable, or God loves me because I'm black, or white, or Asian, or, or Hispanic, or what have you. It's, this, it's no different than saying God loves me because I'm good. Now he just loves me because I'm part of this group. Because I have this culture. Because we act this way at parties. Because we don't get so fired up about everything. Or, because we do. 
get fired up about everything. But the gospel of Jesus comes into us and says, no. That we are all equally alike in sin. All alike are equally in need of rescue. All alike are equally brought near to Jesus by grace alone. The answer to your prejudice, friend, to my prejudice, is to check our pride at the door and believe the gospel. But secondly, a major barrier is fear. Because let's, again, be honest, what makes this so hard for many of us, if not all of us, is that we feel the need to guard our distinctiveness. Right? That to be in relationship with those of, of, of different races, different colors, will somehow make us give up on what we think makes us us. I get that. Look, if I'm, if I'm being honest with you, that's a big one for me. Because I, I tend to be afraid, as, as many of you probably do, that, that I'm going to have to give up all my cultural preferences. Right? We're all standing there afraid that if I get into a relationship with someone else, if I go hang out at someone else's house or with their friends, or, or we, we well, man, I mean, if we start having church together, what's that going to mean for the kind of music I like? I grew up with this, man. I, what's that going to mean for, like, you know, how, how are we going to be able to do things together? What's it going to mean for me? Listen. As I said before, you may have noticed, I'm a white dude. I can't change that. I sing pretty good, but you do not want to hear me sing soul. It, and you certainly don't want to hear me rap. It is awful. Like, this is just, I am who I am. I am who I am. And God is not intending to make a colorless or cultureless church. He created you exactly the way you are. He created me exactly the way I am. He created us black and white and brown and red and yellow. Colorless society is neither possible nor desirable. It's neither possible nor desirable. God wants his church to be a place where all of us, all of us, can lay aside some of our cultural preferences so that we can enter into and enjoy and appreciate those of our, our brothers and sisters. And we can do that because we know that what makes us valuable, what gives us our identity, what makes us distinct, ultimately is not white culture or hip-hop culture or Hispanic culture or Asian culture. It is Jesus Christ. So lastly, let me talk about some practices, some next steps, right? Because some of you are like, okay, Rick, I get it. I get it. Right. Yeah, I got to repent. But what, what is that going to mean? Where do I even begin? It's such a huge thing. Where do I even begin? You're right. It is huge. It's really huge. Here's where we need to begin. First things first. You need to build relationships. Listen, Jesus didn't die to sprinkle a little color or a little lack thereof in your monochromatic congregation. Okay? That is not why he died. And, and some of us in this room think that we would, we, would, we would show the fact, isn't this great, look at the great reconciled church, if there was just a little color in this room, and forget that that is not a reconciled congregation. 
relationships are. And frankly, you cannot expect something to happen on Sunday if it's not happening throughout the week. You can't expect something to be happening in your sanctuary if it's not happening in your living room. You need relationships, okay? You can't be a new people if you don't have relationships. Now, even as soon as I say that, and I'm basically like, you got to go, look, and let me be clear. Some of y'all in this room, if, if you do not have friends who don't look like you, it's time to make some. And I just said that, and some of y'all are getting real nervous in this room, right? Because some of y'all are like, I'm going to get smothered by white folks after, this, after church is done today, and I don't know what's going to happen. You're like looking for the exit. You're like, how do I get out of here quick? <laughs> right? <laughs> look, I get that. I totally get that. But listen, listen. You need it as much as they do. You need it as much as they do. We need to be in relationship with people of other races, having them over for uh, just hanging out or a cookout or asking them about their story, asking them what they like about the kind of... Heck, if you have questions, listen, if you have questions like, why do y'all, what, why do you guys do that? Just ask. Just ask, like just be in relationship and ask the question, but, but learn and appreciate and ask them what they're learning from Jesus. Share life together. And I mean this for both adults and children, right? That's something that needs to go across the board. But relationships come first. I, look, I know that's hard. I know it's hard. I know we have different preferences. I know we have different preferences on, on things like food and music and style of dress, but so What? Because of Jesus, what unites us is far greater than what differentiates us. And it gives us the freedom to learn and to appreciate those differences. Okay, so first and foremost, we've got to start with relationships. Secondly, we need, to, we need to go with stewardship. And when I say stewardship, in our kind of subculture here, stewardship tends to mean money. It can mean that. That's not what I mean. What I mean is this. All of us culturally bring something to the table that is unique. And we need that we need to use that for the good of the whole. Now listen, I'm about to use a phrase here that's going to get some of your, the, the hackles are going to stand up, so I just need you to follow me for a second. There is a such thing as white privilege. Okay? Listen, if you think that there aren't some opportunities that are open for you, some doors that are open for you that are not open to your friends or neighbors of color, you don't think that that's true? You are, you are crazy. You are fooling yourself. That is a fact. That is a fact in our, in our society. When I walk down a sidewalk in, at night and I walk past people, no one clutches their bag close. They don't do it. If I'm out driving at night and, and I've got two or three other guys in the car with me and it's, you know, one in the morning, I'm still, unless I'm swerving all over the road, not likely to get pulled over. Okay? It is true. The, the reality is, is that it is a fact. However, the question is, how can we use that for the sake of others? Okay? Let me, let me put it a different way. Because that's not the only privilege, right? Because that's not... A, look, we have fallen into the habit, and I think it's true of everyone on every side. We've fallen into the habit of thinking that that is... Like, whatever you see in majority culture is like, those are the things we all want to attain to. Do you, do you understand? Listen to me. Especially uh, my, my friends in this room uh, who, who, are, who are black. Listen. 
do you get? Y'all get something that we don't. Do you understand? I have lived in my house now for, I'm going on my fourth year. I know all my neighbors. Here's how I know them. Hey, how are you doing today? Lawn's looking good. Then we go inside. That's, a, that's community. That's neighborhood in white culture. Do you, do you realize that? We think we're doing good. Like, hey, how are you? I had a neighbor. I had a neighbor literally was pr- like, saw them last year, saw them again at, at my kid's school. She got a newborn baby. I'm like, I didn't even know you were pregnant. Like, when did that happen? I mean, I know how that happened, but like, what? what how did. Why? Because that's how we do community. How are you doing? We need to be taught. We need to be taught how to do neighborhood. We need to be taught how to do community. And so the question is not, do we all have our little cultural distinctiveness, cultural things that, that are beautiful and need and, and are, are worth keeping? The question is, are we going to use that to help each other flourish? Are we going to use that? Are we going to steward those things that God has given us for the good of others? Are we going to use our respective privileges to serve others instead of serving ourselves? And are we going to do that because we believe that everything we need has already been given to us in Christ? Now, let me close with this. My own journey on this issue should be mentioned. When, um, when we began Holy Cross uh, some time ago, it was never my intention. Let me make this very clear. Okay? A little moment of personal confession. It was never my intention to have a multi-ethnic or multi-racial church. That was not my intention. I wasn't opposed to it. It just was not my intention. Okay? I liked my comfort the way it was. I liked the way I did things. It was, it was nice and neat, and let's just keep things that way. But God, in his grace, helped me to repent by showing me the need. And when I say the need, I do not mean the paternalistic idea of those poor people who need the gospel. I mean my need. My need for others who don't look like me to come and bring their experience of Jesus to me so that I might grow into the maturity that God has, has set out for me in Jesus. My need our need for one another. Our city's need to see where true reconciliation comes from. And frankly, my desire to see God get glory from all those whom He has made. Look, this is hard, and it is hard for all of us. Some of us, following the pattern of some of the uh, characters in Scripture, like Daniel, in chapter 9 of his book, or Ezra, in chapter 9 of his book, or, or Nehemiah in... You guessed it. Chapter 9 of his book need to take some time and repent. We need to ask the Lord for forgiveness for the sins, not necessarily that we have done, but that our fathers and our grandfathers have done, knowing that even though we may not have done it, we're still part of the problem. That's biblical, okay? But for all of us, it will mean leaving what is comfortable, leaving our pride, leaving our fear, and pursuing to make the fact of Jesus work. Look, you don't have to make reconciliation. It has been done in Christ. We are just asked to realize it. It is to take the fact of Jesus' work and then to make it visible. In other words, having encountered Jesus and growing to know him together with one another, that, that, that is one of our opportunities to be able to show Jesus to our world. That we show Jesus by walking in reconciliation. Would you pray with me? Lord, wherever we're at in this room, we, we ask for your grace. We ask for your grace to love one another well, to 
be in community together to, to learn from one another what is true of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would build Holy Cross into a place uh, where we can come and appreciate one another, appreciate what you have done in us and through us, and appreciate the work of Jesus in redeeming what is beautiful in our cultures while also calling us to to lay aside those things that are broken in all of us. And Lord, do this so that you might let, uh, let this city take notice that there is a God in heaven and that the only way to see the, the only true way to see these barriers break down fully and finally is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.